A team of doctors need to fix a critically ill patient's badly damaged esophagus, only to find that it's beyond repair by standard practice. What they did instead, you'll have to hear to believe. Now you land up with a unique situation. You have a wrench lying in your toolbox to change your tires for your car, and your furnace broke down. And you're looking for a wrench that will be the closest fit. It's one of those things. You just see what is available on the shelf, innovate. On today's show, we'll get the story straight from the doctor in our community who led an extraordinary team effort in successfully regrowing an esophagus inside the patient. And later, you'll learn how this could lead to future breakthroughs in patient care. It's an amazing story of a landmark organ regeneration done out of life-saving necessity inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio, our first show for 2017. I'm your host, Brian Belmer, back as we spend the next 30 minutes discovering together. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. When a team of medical experts were called upon to repair an injured man's badly damaged esophagus, the outlook was bleak. The patient's esophagus, the organ essential for swallowing and eating, was damaged beyond repair by standard medical practice. Challenged but undeterred, Dr. Colwinder Dua and his cohorts had to think outside the box to come up with a viable solution. Dr. Dua is professor of gastroenterology and hepatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and section chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Zablocki VA Medical Center in Milwaukee. In 2016, Dr. Dua and his team published a paper of their findings in the renowned medical journal The Lancet, detailing their landmark work in regenerating or regrowing the esophagus inside the patient. And today, courtesy of audio provided by the Medical College of Wisconsin's Office of Communications, we have the distinct honor of hearing this amazing story direct from Dr. Dua himself. He begins by explaining how he first came to see the patient after the young man had developed an infection following injuries sustained in a serious automobile accident. Way back in 2007, this patient who was quite young at the time was brought in emergently to our hospital with significant fever, chills, very painful swallowing and in fact inability to swallow and his CAT scan showing a big abscess that was done at an outside hospital straight to our cardiothoracic surgeons. So they had to emergently deal with this big abscess that had developed at the back wall of his throat down into his upper chest and at that time they found out that one of the metal plates that were put in his cervical spine following a road traffic accident to stabilize the spine had eroded through and completely destroyed the back wall of his throat and upper esophagus. And 
all his saliva and some of the food that he may have eaten went out into his chest cavity, resulting in this life-threatening abscess. Unfortunately, an initial surgery proved unsuccessful. At the time of surgery, the first surgery, the surgeons had to get in neurosurgeons and otolaryngology surgeons because it was across boundaries from the chest to the throat and the spine where we have the spinal cord. So we needed consultation from all these surgeons and a lot of surgical work was done to fix it. There were tubes put in to drain the abscess, the usual standard of care we do in these cases. And the patient had to go back again to clean out more abscesses and more pus. And eventually the patient was left with a very big hole that was in his upper esophagus. Dr. Dua says by the time he saw the patient, the hole had grown to be of considerable size. Initially, when the surgeons were doing the surgery, it was described to be a smaller hole in their report, and then it went on to become bigger and bigger to the extent that after several attempts at fixing it, he was then sent to us. And by the time we got him and we went from the top end, we expect that this could have been a small hole and we could have fixed it the traditional way, but we didn't even see normal esophagus. We didn't even see a broken esophagus. We in fact saw nothing. We saw a big abscess cavity. When we put an endoscope down his throat, we go straight into his chest cavity. We don't even see an esophagus. All our attempts to find where the remaining esophagus is failed because this cavity had completely disconnected this segment. And then when we came from below into the remaining esophagus, the top end of that broken esophagus from there to his mouth was about five centimeters. That basically is almost the upper third of the esophagus, a big, big wide gap in this challenging situation that what can we do to fix it? We had to then go through his skin, through a feeding tube that he had into his stomach and climb backwards from below and put a wire in this cavity and then come from the mouth, catch the wire and pull it out from the mouth and that's how we established a wire connection between the mouth and the stomach. Now, Dr. Dua says that holes in the esophagus do occur and are in most cases able to be surgically corrected. Traditionally, when people have damage to the esophagus, like a perforation from, say, we are doing endoscopically, say, a procedure where we need to dilate the esophagus and we perforate the esophagus, or there is a surgery that was done on the esophagus that starts leaking, all these patients have holes in the esophagus. But they are easy to fix because we can put a stent, which is actually the same device that they have for blocked arteries in the heart. So we have been treating holes in the esophagus with those stents with a fairly good result. There are many studies published that shows that when you use stents to treat perforation leaks or fistulas in the esophagus, your success rate of treating them successfully without any leakage is around about 70 to 80%. However, this hole presented a challenge. So we thought that this is a little bit too big, but what can we do? Let's try to put a stent. So when we put stents, the stents are carried into that area over a guide wire. But here, we couldn't even find where the remaining esophagus is. That's why we approached this backtracking approach and found our communication between the mouth and the stomach. And then over those, we put our stents to bridge this area, hoping that's all what is needed. But it didn't work. Then he explains another challenge doctors were faced with. The stents uh, come in various diameters and various uh, lengths. 
since this was roughly around about 5 cm segment that we had to bridge, we took a stent that was about 12 cm so that we have enough of the stent bridging the lower remaining esophagus and enough of the stent that is above the area of disruption. And that was our second challenge. Normally when the esophagus perforates through an endoscopic procedure or a leak from surgery and so on, it is somewhere in the middle of the esophagus. So we have enough of margin at the top end and the lower end to put the stent. In this particular case, there was no upper end. So the stent had to be in his throat. That is an issue because it's like putting your finger in your mouth around the clock. You'll keep gagging. You have to be careful about not blocking the patient's airways. And at the same time, if he's gagging all the time, the stent is not going to work. It's going to move. But in some ways, because this abscess had also destroyed his pharynx, his gag reflex, interestingly, was weak. So he got used to the stent. And we were hopeful that this will fix it. But what happened is that whenever a patient swallows, the material will go from the side of the stent into the cavity. When the top end of the stent is lying in the throat and the patient swallows, we expect the food to go into the stent. If it goes on the side of the stent, it will percolate from the side into the cavity. So it wasn't a watertight seal. And we cannot make a watertight seal when the top end of the stent is lying in the throat. So if stents alone weren't going to work, then what? Dr. Dua had another idea. So now we knew that the stent is not going to work. Even if it allows the food to go into the stomach, the abscess will be continuously fed with saliva and food and become life-threatening again. So that's the time I realized that there have been some studies in animals where they have actually cut pieces of the esophagus out and grown them back using regenerative medicine principles. We wanted to do something that is not that experimental that we are making our own devices, but something that we can pick up from the toolbox that are lying in our shelf, FDA approved, and use the experience from animal studies and apply it to this case. So for example, in the animal studies, when they cut a section of the esophagus out, they put in a scaffold, which is made of some tissue matrix. And the tissue matrix scaffold has got tremendous regenerative potentials. It's a tissue that attracts blood vessels. It's a tissue that attracts stem cells that can differentiate into organs. It also forms a nice seal if you want to wrap it around a defect. So one such tissue that is available is called alloderm. Alloderm. Dr. Dua explains further. It's a donated human skin. And this donated human skin, of course, we have to make sure it is not carrying any bacteria in it. It is processed. Its cells are changed. And eventually, it is dried and sold in a sterile manner for people to have regeneration of wounds that are not healing. And people have also used it for any perforations and holes. And it is FDA approved for transplantation. So one of the options was that now that we have placed the stent and the stent is not watertight seal proof, how about going and wrapping it with this tissue matrix, which they have done in dogs to show that it can grow the esophagus back. So that was one plan. And Dr. Dua and his team of experts had another notion. When we injure ourselves, say we cut our skin, we don't put stem cells there. The body heals. So there is a tremendous mechanism in our body where we can recruit our own stem cells in areas for healing. So rather than go and starting to harvest stem cells out from the bone marrow and try to impregnate the whole matrix with those stem cells, our thought was that you do something there to attract the stem cells. The body will bring it, give this whole thing some time and it will regenerate like they did in dogs. And also don't forget that the stem 
themselves, they are cells that if you put it in a different area, they become that organ. So if you say hypothetically put those stem cells in a damaged liver, they should go and regenerate the liver. So what tells the stem cell to differentiate into a particular organ is the signals it is getting from the site where the organ is. So we thought that rather than growing this out on a Petri dish, how about growing it inside the patient so that the signals are coming for this stem cell to know that this is the esophagus because that's what the remaining esophagus signals and the body signals may be coming. So they put the idea of trying to grow an esophagus to work. We decided that, you know, like get all the ingredients and put it in the oven and let it bake. How long will it take to regrow back? We don't know. So we wrapped this defect with this donated human skin and to trigger regeneration, we took the patient's own blood, we spun it and took out platelets and that with some calcium and thrombin prayed like a super glue onto this donated skin. A super glue created from the patient's own blood platelets. How does that work? Platelets have a very strong growth factor mechanism. They also have certain things they release that attracts the stem cells to that area. And because it's the patient's own blood, we don't have risk of blood transmitting infection from some other's blood. So after the stents were wrapped with alloderm, the area was sprayed with the patient's own platelet. The neck muscle was put back and the area was closed. Dr. Dua and his team put their plan into action. So now what? So now comes the big question, what will happen down the road? We do get concerned because stents can cut both ways. It's a foreign body. It can cause more damage. If it goes and perforates the aorta, the patient can drop dead in a second because all the major arteries and everything is over there. We didn't want to risk any of those serious effects that can happen. So we recommended to the patient that we would like to take the stents out in 12 weeks. Did we expect the organ to grow in 12 weeks? No. But I'd rather have a damaged esophagus than a person dropping dead from the aorta bleeding out on me. At this point, the patient himself made a decision going against the advice of doctors that would be crucial towards the eventual outcome of the procedure. Nearer the time when we met the patient in the clinic, he had started eating. He still had a feeding tube, so we were giving him quality of life to enjoy taste of food besides supplementing his calories from his feeding tube. And at that time, he asked me that if you take the stents out, what's going to happen? I said, one is that you may have as big of a defect still there or the area will scar down and close up completely. Then he said, what happens if you don't take it out? And I told him about the risks. And he opted that he would rather eat than to live with his food eating ability gone. So despite all persuasion from my side, he refused. And I give him full credit for what we discovered because that led to opportunity for us to see what happens as this time goes by. And uh, if, say, for example, uh, the whole process of regrowing the organ took six months and I had I removed the stent in three months, I would have not known whatever happened. So the patient decided to leave the stents in his esophagus so he could continue eating. Here's a stent sitting there and he's eating and we did some periodic cat scans to see if the abscess is coming back and the abscess was gone nothing was leaking we made him swallow some contrast and it was going through the stent into his stomach and slowly he was eating more and more and using his tube less and less we knew that the stents are there it's just that one day the stents is going to give him a complication and the patient adamantly despite a few more attempts to tell him to get the stents out did not agree 
three and a half years later, he calls me and uh, says that now I can't eat. I said, well, we'll have to endoscope you and have a look and see what happened here. So when we endoscoped him at that time, we found that we had three stents stacked into each other like a telescope. The bottom stent, which is near the stomach, the tissue had bulged into the stent and like a ball valve intermittently was blocking the stent. And that was tissue that had grown with friction. So we went and cut it out with an endoscopic technique and opened up the passage, but it kept coming back. We eventually now told him stents need to come out and he agreed. It was once the patient finally agreed to have the stents removed from his esophagus that something amazing was discovered. So now, three and a half years later, he shows up with this problem. For six months, we kept trying to clean up that tissue from below. It didn't work. So roughly four years with the stents lying in his body, we went and took them out. Now, the stents have got from the outside a rough area. That's how they anchor. So when we remove stents, it's like removing sandpaper. So everything looks beaten up. It looks bruised. So we always bring the patient back in about four to six weeks to see if things are beginning to tighten up, close up, so that we can start stretching it now before it becomes a pinhole. So in eight weeks, he came back and we scoped him. We put an endoscope down. And to our surprise, it looked as though nothing had happened. We saw in the area previously where there was no esophagus, a normal looking esophagus. I even took biopsies from the inside and the biopsy came back as normal looking lining of the esophagus. So that was surprising and he was now eating more and more. I repeatedly asked him, have you had any choking spells? Have you been admitted with pneumonia, anything? Nothing. He was eating. Despite the encouraging results, Dr. Dua was still cautiously optimistic. But we still kept the feeding tube because I was not sure that after I removed the stent, even though it is four years out, what's going to happen? So I told him, why don't you keep this feeding tube in? Eat as much as you can. Don't use it if you don't have to, but don't take it out. And let's go back in one year and see what happens. It's only eight weeks since I removed the stent. Maybe in the next several months, this may close up. So one year later, he comes back. Absolutely normal looking area. Not only that, sometimes the lining of the esophagus can grow on scar tissue. So we did a test where we can sonar from the inside and see what's happening outside. And we did an endoscopic ultrasound and we looked at the wall of this regrown area and the wall had in many areas the normal five looking layers. In fact, it looked so normal that I was like, it's too good to be true. But was it too good to be true? So we said, okay, you know what? It looks normal. There's a bit of scar tissue here and there. But otherwise, the five layers of the wall of a normal esophageal wall, we could see them. Okay, let's see if it works. So we did typical peristaltic motility studies that we do in patients where we looked at how the esophagus contracts. So we also did that study the same day and we found that it was even functioning the way a normal esophagus should function. A little bit weak contractions at the junction of the new esophagus and the old one. But the proof of the pudding was that he was eating, not choking, not coughing, no pneumonias. So all these studies that we did basically was for us to know what's going on here. I mean, how did this happen? And how is the patient doing today? Now he is, uh, when we submitted our paper to the Lancet, he was four years out from the day we pulled the stents, not from the day we put the stents. And I talked to him about three weeks ago. We took his permission and uh, talked to him about whether he would talk to the media or, uh, you know, eat in front of somebody and all. He politely refused. Um, and uh, he said that he's doing great. He has not used his feeding tube. Feeding tube is out now. Came out way, way back. 
he has no issues at all. Uh, so now if you count this phone call I made, he's five years out now since we pulled the stents. So where does Dr. Dua and his team go from here with their esophageal regeneration findings? Interestingly, he has to work in somewhat reverse order from what is typical in medical research. This is a clinical observation, an observation in real life. And we call this bedside observation or research. Normally, when there is anything that people do new in science, they do it first at the basic level, like animal research. We call it the bench side research. So bench side research experience then is carried to the bedside. Over here, the bedside observation now has to be carried to the bench. And we will have to find out how things can regenerate and whether what we used like an extracellular matrix, the donated human skin, whether we used patients' own platelets that was required or not required, we don't know. So we will have to do a similar technique in animals, which in fact have been done to some extent, but in various permutations and combinations. Using stuff that is off the shelf commercially available, see if it works, and as proof of principle, confirm and validate this observation and then under strict regulatory protocols we'll have to do phase one and phase two human clinical studies. While his findings are exciting and encouraging and gaining worldwide attention, Dr. Du is adamant that there's much more research on the procedure to be done. I would caution against jumping on this using it for prime time. No. In fact I did get a call from press in Sweden saying that they can they do this for the trachea and my answer was conceptually yes but you have to do animal and phase one phase two clinical studies but could his method be reproduced and become a standard procedure in our healthcare for the future if the experience learned from this one case is reproduced and shown to be validated in animals and then applied in humans and if it works the issue is this, that there are many variables. For example, one big place where this will have a big impact will be people who are going to have almost two-thirds of the esophagus removed for cancer. Okay, In these patients, we have to pull the stomach in the chest and plumb it back to the remaining esophagus. They have lifelong symptoms. You know, more than half the stomach is now in the chest. Chest is a negative pressure organ. Your food will not leave the stomach. You'll have reflux. You may have a lot of symptoms. Anastomotic sites break down. So if we can grow that area back, that would be a big advance. However, people with cancer also get chemotherapy and radiation. So will that kill the stem cells? Will that affect the regeneration? Again, going back to the drawing board, starting off with animal studies, phase one, phase two studies. So when it comes to variabilities, every case who loses or damages the esophagus is from a unique cause. And whether we can extrapolate this to everybody, we don't know. Then what is Dr. Dua's big picture vision for this procedure going beyond the esophagus? The bigger picture, I think, is that the technique of using a scaffold to maintain the three-dimensional configuration of an organ and triggering regrowth with matrix, platelets, any other mechanisms, and giving the regeneration process some time. If this hypothesis in your own body works, we could go beyond the esophagus. We go to the trachea, we go to the small bowel, we go to the uterus, urinary bladder. 
So the hypothesis of maintaining the configuration of an organ and stimulating regeneration and keeping that configuration intact for a long period of time for regeneration to work before that organ gets distorted is what I think needs to be investigated. As mentioned, Dr. Dua's work on his regenerative growth of a patient's esophagus is getting worldwide attention. So what does it mean for him and his research cohort at the Medical College of Wisconsin and beyond? Lancet, as you know, is a very, very high-impact journal. And MCW is already in the news because of this publication. And I must also say that this is a team effort. The surgeons, for example, full credit to Mario Gaspari, who was the surgeon on this case. This is a team effort, and I was just one of the players. And media, uh, which has caught on to this paper that has been published, I feel that we will have many centers, including in Europe, Asia, that will pick up this and run with this idea. And I want that to happen. I want the science to be on a fast track, no matter where it is done. And the need for additional research brings about another need. If we have to take this to the next level at MCW, we'll have to have funding for this. Say, for example, we want to do animal studies and we create a defect. We apply this approach. And if it takes one year for the organ to grow back, we want to keep the animals alive for one year. So getting animals, housing them, and doing this research is going to be expensive. And this is where we will require funds. But knowing that the procedure to regenerate an esophagus already has worked once, could it be tried again, if needed, ahead of the necessary research to tell us why it works? Dr. Dua says, Of course, any patient who comes to us where the standard of care approach first has been tried out and did not work will be somewhere we can do this on a fast track. But I would caution against using this at the cost of not using the standard of care. In fact, this paper in Lancet came with invited commentary, like an editorial. And in that, those experts mentioned that one human case is worth a thousand mice, but yet we have to do animal studies. If we land up with clinical situations where we are cornered into a life-threatening situations and we have exhausted our standard of care, then obviously with our IRB all well informed on what we are going to do, we can do this in humans. In the meantime, I think we will have to take it to the bench. Given the result of successfully regenerating the patient's esophagus, one has to wonder, is Dr. Dua himself surprised by the outcome? Somebody asked me, was this a fluke? I would say at the max a calculated fluke because we just did not like throw the kitchen sink at this patient. We knew that in the principles of regeneration, especially as far as the esophagus is concerned, this is what is out there in animals. So what is the closest we can get? For example, in the animal studies, they used a matrix that was derived from the pig skin. Then instead of using platelets, they used the animal's own muscle cells and they made the stent also of matrix and they grew the esophagus back. So now in our case, if you take the donated human skin, now how can I make it into a tubular structure without it collapsing? So I had to use a stent and then this platelet. Now, where did we get that idea from? The facio-maxillary surgeons sometimes use platelet spray when they have taken out a big tumor from the jaw and they want to make the new bone grow back, they spray platelets. So it's like the right hand trying to find out what the left is doing and bring it together. Finally, while Dr. Du recognizes there's much more work to be done, he marvels at what's already been done. It's amazing how much has been done. There was a publication in 2014 on how they took cells from the stomach and gave it the right signals and they grew small stomachs. So if you go out and look, there is so much of work already done. 
And now you land up with a unique situation. You have a wrench lying in your toolbox that is used to change your tires for your car and your furnace broke down. And you're looking for a wrench that probably will be the closest fit. It's one of those things. You just see what is available on the shelf, innovate. For his leadership in this team science approach to patient care, Dr. Dua was presented the CTSI's prestigious 2016 Dean's Award in Translational Science and was also recently recognized by Milwaukee Biz Times as a healthcare hero for advancements in healthcare. We appreciate Dr. Dua sharing this team science discovery with our show. And with an eye on the future to see where this medical breakthrough could lead us, we've reached the end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guest, Dr. Colwinder Dua, Professor of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Section Chief, Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Zablocki VA Medical Center. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar to join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Bellmer, wishing you happy, healthy days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. While you're there, please be sure to sign up as a community member. We need your help as we strive to advance clinical and translational team science and improve the health of our community and people worldwide. And remember, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer. Co-produced by Tom Crawford and Jeremy Kuzniar in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir. Thank you.